I think most people think that endangered species are inevitable. And what our work is showing is that that's not the case. I'm Lisa Morehouse, and this is California Foodways. I'm traveling to every county in the state, finding stories about food, agriculture, and the people that make both possible. In today's episode, we're going to Northern California to rice country, and we're going to meet some strange bedfellows. They're trying to work together to make the Sacramento Valley the perfect place for both agriculture and wildlife. Just outside the tiny town of Richvale, fourth-generation farmer Josh Shepard maneuvers his ATV on levees, his dog Tonka in tow. He's showing me rice fields flooded with a few inches of water. Farmers flood their fields in summer to grow rice, and in winter to break down what's left of last year's crop. But for a farm tour, we're doing a lot of bird watching. We got some egrets, some sandhill cranes. We've got the curlews, we got ibis. We can see a large uh, grind of geese and, and some ducks. Yep, big great blue herring flying in front of us here now. A lot of migratory birds, which are drawn to the rice fields. They use these rice fields as their uh, surrogate wetlands that, that used to naturally exist, you know, 100 years ago. Most of those natural wetlands have been uh, developed over, but, but these rice fields are a perfect substitute for that. Before the gold rush, the whole Central Valley was like a bathtub. Rivers from the mountains flowed into the valley, and then the water slowly spread out through natural wetlands. Migrating species stopped to feed here. Salmon going to and from the ocean. Birds flying from Alaska and Argentina. But with the development of agriculture, dams, houses and roads, California lost almost all of its natural wetlands, over 90%. And now the northern bit of the Central Valley, the Sacramento Valley, looks like a quilt of perfectly level rice fields. They make pretty great, but not perfect, bird habitat. That's why when I meet Shepard on February 1st, he's purposely changing water levels in his fields, all for the birds. All right, Tonka, here we go. We're going to release some water. As his dog splashes in the water, Shepard kneels on the levee at a concrete gate, tugging at a few boards of lumber which hold all the water in the field. A little bit of water spilling out now, and as I keep pulling more of the boards, we'll ultimately have, you know, maybe a little rush of water. Just that easy. He's flooding because that's part of his farm practice. But government and nonprofit groups pay Shepard and other farmers to add water to some fields or, as he's doing now, release it bit by bit over a month. That gives migrating birds a few more weeks of feeding time by turning the Sacramento Valley into a checkerboard of flooded fields, puddles, and mudflats. Those different habitats attract different types of birds, which need to fuel up before their long journeys north to nest. This is a curlew, right, with that crazy yeah. beak? Yeah, a little piper, shorter leg guy with, but you see them dipping into the shallow water there and they're looking for bugs, they're, they're eating breakfast, what they're doing, you know. Draining fields early and all at once would save time and labor and be less risky. But in 2008, rice farmers and bird people got in a room with a whiteboard, brainstorming ideas about changes farmers could make to give migrating birds a few more weeks of feeding time. 
to introduce water on a field and, and to hold that water, you know, a little longer was a concept that a little bit foreign to us at the beginning, but but when we really realized the benefit of it, it, it become kind of like, well, well, heck yeah, we're gonna do that. Are these changes working? Millions of geese, ducks, and shorebirds use the Sacramento Valley during migration and winter. A recent study of just one of these programs showed birds are using managed rice fields at rates up to three times higher than ever recorded. Of course, creating good bird habitat also helps create good PR for the rice industry, which is among California's top 10 most water-using crops. The Rice Commission's website homepage features a video of snow geese landing on a field. But Shepard himself admits... You know, there was a time even in the rice industry, we, we weren't the poster child of, you know, all the environmental stuff that we, uh, you know, have, have adopted. He's talking about the once common practice of burning fields, a cheap and effective way to get rid of the straw left over after rice harvest. As a kid, Jessica Lumberg heard people complain that rice farmers mucked up the air. It was terrible. All of the fields would go up in, in maybe a two or three week period and the valley was just socked in with smoke and you couldn't really even see the foothills. Her family's business, Lundberg Family Farms, stopped this practice in the 1960s. Her grandparents lived through the Dust Bowl before moving here and saw how farmers needed to steward the land. If that's your mentality, if you're going into it thinking, I have to take care of all of this, uh, then you start looking for solutions, right? You start asking questions. A belief system they passed on. Lundberg says her dad always kept an Audubon book in his truck and taught her to learn seasons of wildlife as well as farming. In the 1990s, the state significantly restricted burning in rice country, so farmers started flooding fields instead to decompose that rice straw. And the water in the fields, it's a great habitat for insects. Which attract birds. So once burning was no longer acceptable, then those species could use the land again. So it's, it's actually had a huge impact on some of the bird populations. Do you remember that? Do you remember seeing a difference? Oh yeah, yeah, I remember seeing a difference. Absolutely, it's, it was pretty striking. I mean, it took several years, but it doesn't take birds long to, to tell their friends that there's some good stuff going on over here. <laughs> Lundberg says she sees agricultural benefits to sharing rice fields with birds. There's also that physical agitation. It, when a bird steps in a field, there's that mush, mushing effect of their feet, and that's helping to also work the straw into the soil so you get more even decomposition. And then there's the bird poop. Somewhere around a pound of poop per bird <laughs> is left in the fields. Uh, if you've got a, a pretty solid group of birds that's in your fields for a couple weeks at a time that are feeding and resting during the day, well, that's straight nitrogen that's going to go into the soil. Lundberg Family Farms participate in lots of programs, so their rice fields serve conservation purposes when they're not in ag use. I think that this is the direction of the new agriculture. I think that it has to be collaborative. But when you attract millions of migrating birds to rice country, some will end up nesting there. That can be a problem on working ag land. In early summer, I meet up with Regina Stafford and her team from the California Waterfowl Association in a rice field that's about to get tilled. They have two big ATVs, a rope, and tin cans filled with gravel. So we're setting up um, what we call a drag rope. Tied between the ATVs. And the rope kind of spins on those swivels as we go. It's nothing high tech for sure, is it? <laughs> 
Ducks love to nest in these dry rice fields before planting season. But when workers bring out the big machinery, they could easily miss the nests and crush them, eggs and all. To avoid that, Stafford and her egg salvage team drive these ATVs slowly, in parallel, down the bumpy field, using these simple noisemakers to flush the ducks. We just had a hen flush from her nest, so we're going to stop and check it out. Team members place the eggs in cartons and add some down for protection. What happens to these and all the salvaged eggs this team collects? They go to a nearby hatchery and grow into ducks. A few weeks later, Regina Stafford's leading an educational program, teaching kids how to release ducks onto habitat. Remember, they can't fly, so we're not going to be doing any kind of duck chucking, okay? Count of three. One, two, three. Make good choices! <laughs> Stafford tells me her employer, California Waterfowl, saved nearly 4,000 eggs last year. Now, it's a hunting organization, and this land that houses the hatchery and habitat, it's a hunting club. I asked Stafford, are they just saving eggs to make more ducks for hunting? She says, habitat like this, paid for by hunters, helps support all the birds that migrate through this area. We will only conserve what we know, and that's what we all have to come together for as Californians and, and really try and be on the same page, whether whether we agree on all all aspects of it or not, but uh, habitat and conservation is, is crucial. So if hunters, farmers, and conservationists all come together for birds who find surrogate wetlands in these fields, I wondered, could other wildlife benefit from rice? Scientist Jacob Katz says, yes, salmon can. Two million salmon once came through the Golden Gate and into the rivers of the Central Valley. That's before state and federal governments built dams and canals, a whole water infrastructure, to move water to farms and cities. What we think we're looking at here is the key to that kind of abundance again. I meet cats at a large rice farm full of swans, dowagers, and sandhill cranes. His colleague puts on waders and collects samples by tossing a plankton net into three different bodies of water that run through the farm. First, the Sacramento River. Well, what you're looking for is movement, right? Uh, what we'd like to see in a, in a fertile water sample is a, is a bunch of bugs, which we simplify as fish food, right? And what you see in there is some drift in uh, sand and a little bit of... Uh, of, of plant parts, maybe, but very few bugs. Next, a nearby canal, where the results are pretty similar. Some floating debris, but not a lot of life. Not a lot of wiggling, writhing, invertebrates. This is canal water that, that doesn't have a lot to eat in it, if you're a fish. But when Katz holds up the sample taken from one of the flooded rice fields... This sample is just absolutely teeming. It's writhing like this whole area would have been a century ago when it was a natural floodplain. And if a salmon gets to eat from this kind of water... It's going to get fat, it's going to get robust, it's going to pack a lunch for the long journey down to the ocean, and it's going to have a much better chance of returning as an adult. 
Katz and his team found that by letting salmon feed in flooded rice fields, they grew seven times faster than fish in the nearby river channel. He's advocating for different water infrastructure in the state. We'd like to see gates in our levees, in our bypasses, that would allow water and fish to flow out of the river and onto managed floodplains uh, that provide them with the food access with the incredible habitat. But right now, it's really hard to get fish into and then out of agricultural landscapes bounded by levees and canals. Since the water from flooded rice fields is so thick with great fish food, Katz is experimenting with the best ways to move this bug-rich water from rice fields out to rivers where fish actually feed. He says we can take lessons and hope from the success of bird conservation on rice fields and apply them to other species. I think most people think that endangered species are inevitable. And what our work is showing is that that's not the case. And so what we're trying to do is say, hey, look, we're not going back. We're never going to be able to recreate tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of acres of waving tule in wetland. But if we understand how that system worked, if we understand the mechanisms that created that kind of abundance. Then, he says, we can learn how to create landscapes that benefit fish, birds, and agriculture. That's it for this episode of California Foodways. This story was reported and produced by me, Lisa Morehouse. It originally aired on KQED's California Report magazine and NPR's Here and Now. Our theme music is by Takanobu, and Ariel Plotnik produces the podcast. We receive support from FERN, the Food and Environment Reporting Network, and from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. You can learn more at calhum.org. Subscribe to California Foodways on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow CA Foodways on social media and visit our website, californiafoodways.com. <laughs>